Hello and welcome to the Monocle Culture Show with me, Robert Bound. Up for discussion today, we have the Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese, to give it its full title. The film follows Dylan on his 1975 Rolling Thunder Review tour, a variety show of sorts where he was accompanied by a supergroup made up of Allen Ginsberg, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell and plenty more big on the folk scene, and David Bowie's sidekick in The Spiders from Mars, Mick Ronson, to whom apparently he never spoke. It's billed as a documentary and largely consists of hours and hours of footage recorded during the tour for another film that Dylan was making with Sam Shepard called Ronaldo and Clara, as well as a series of interviews with some of the key players of the tour. It's here that the lines between fact and fiction begin to blur, as among the performers were introduced to some fictitious characters poised to spin a yarn about the dramas that unfolded behind the scenes, supposedly. To work out what really happened on the Rolling Thunder Review, I'm joined today by Chief Rock and Pop Critic for The Times, Will Hodgkinson, Deputy Editor at Riposte magazine, Liv Siddle, and Film Critic for The Telegraph, Tim Roby. Summer 1975, rumour came around that the inspired Dylan was back, gathering all of his forces. I want to tell you something. <laughs> The idea was to put a tour up. We should be playing 20,000 seats. But instead, it wanted all these small venues. We're really running short of time. I want to introduce Boy, sure hope we get to Boston on time. Where have you been? The tour was a catastrophe. Where have you been? It wasn't a success. Not if you measure success in terms of profit. Welcome, everyone, to the program. It's put us in a strange mood talking about this film. I feel it already. I've just been re-watching it upstairs before I came down. And I feel a bit tingly and strange. I don't know where the lines between facts and fiction are. Tim, let's tackle it as a film before we dive into the music and all the rest of it. We start off with a clip of Georges Méliès, the kind of a proto, not prankster, but I guess the first person who ever uses special effects in films. We see a conjurer. Mm. We see sleight of hand. From where do we go after this? What sort of film are we looking there's at? There's trickery galore, basically, is what it's saying. And there's miming and uh, yeah. face masks and all kinds of things. And there's a clip from Children of Paradise later on, the white-faced mime in that, which kind of parallels Dylan's look during this tour. So it's being very playful and, and kind of setting you up for this kind of magical air of conjuring. I'm going to say, I'm of those of us here, as the rogue film critic, I'm going to be the least sort of Dylan, uh, <laughs> Dylan expert, if you like. Among us, but I did come in with one advantage into this film, which is that Desire is my favourite Dylan album, yeah. and it's Desire that really he was sort of thrashing out <clears> on this tour and uh, singing a lot of those songs for the first time. And my favourite moments of the film really do consist of him just belting out the best songs from Desire, Hurricane, Isis, and so on, uh, which we get at regular intervals. But there is a balance of sort of fifty-fifty kind of between the the concert performance and then the the kind of more backstagey stuff. Some of which then we kind of have to subsequently discover is not real and there's fresh I mean there's obviously all the, all the footage and behind the scenes stuff in 19, from 1975 and then there's fresh interviews with Dylan now and he says at the beginning it happened so long ago maybe it never happened it wasn't a review it wasn't anything life isn't about finding yourself or finding anything it's about creating yourself and creating things so there's kind of 
never a truer word spoken perhaps, but also you sort of get a sense of the mastery of Dylan's trickery and slipperiness. So let's kind of talk about, let's try and dive into the music. Where does this sit? At what period is he as an artist in 1975? He was in the period of storytelling. Very, very long narrative songs, which were actually quite easy to understand. Whereas before, he was interested in obfuscation and um, surrealism. Whereas now, if you listen to Blood on the Tracks and Desire, and you know, especially Desire, if you listen to songs like Hurricane, you know, which is, as, as everybody probably knows, was, was about this boxer who wrong, yeah. wrongly incarcerated for a murder. So Dylan was interested in storytelling, but at the same time, this had been after a period when... So really he'd stopped touring, you know, sort of going right back to 67, you know. And, and then, he had this motorbike crash, right? Yeah, the motorbike crash, again, I mean... We'd, Tim I kind of think that was real. I don't know. <laughs> well, the motorbike crash, I think what actually happened, as I understand, was real to an extent. And there were other things going on, which I can't really, you know, I sort of... Yeah. It's, it's all, you know, it's, it's all rumour. But there are other, other reasons why he came off the road. But he had toured with the band in 1975 and he had done this tour of stadiums and he didn't particularly enjoy the experience. And so the whole idea with this... This is the band with the capital B. With the band, exactly. The, the first ever kind of super group that he were his backing band and then became... They'd been his backing band, yeah. exactly. And, so the, and you know, he'd made this amazing album called The Basement Tapes, which wasn't intended for release. It was intended for songs for other people and, and that, that had come out. So he was he was in this position where he wanted to go back on the road. He wanted to go back to a kind of more rootsy experience of playing not stadiums, but playing smaller halls. And he had, you know, the whole idea of the Rolling Thunder Review, which actually, in a way, has never stopped. He's yeah. still going on now. He kind of it was sort of the beginning of the never ending tour. But it was it, it was very magical because it was loose. And so he got Roger McGuinn on board, who, you know, obviously with the birds he'd yeah. had a long history with. And Joan Byers you know, going back to his old folky days. Yeah. And there was Joan Byers, who everyone saw Dylan being horrible to in, in the film Don't Look Back. So that was the 65 tour, was it? It came out in 67, didn't it? Of, mm. uh, you know, the tour of England. So there she was. And you've got this very, very different thing. And what I found really, really fascinating about it is that I've seen Dylan a bunch of times and it's been pretty disappointing. You know, he's hidden on the side of stage. He's had played this little keyboard. He's hardly sung. And when he has sung, he's mangled songs beyond, you know, beyond recognition. Or he's just done golden oldies. It's been really disappointing. And watching whatever fakery is going on in this film, the performances are completely electric. Yeah. I just think they're brilliant. And so that was, it was really the birth of Dylan, not the birth, but it was the rebirth of Dylan as a great performer. Everyone knows that he's a great songwriter. But this was a fantastic It's kind of Dylan, the rock star. And that was the golden age of rock stars, the late 70s, I suppose, mid to late 70s. And he's a proper bona fide rock star. He's, he's a Robert Plant, he's a Jagger. Not that he's dancing around on stage, but he's just got that thing where he's not hiding behind a... Although he's wearing white face in this thing and he's kind of... He's jumping through many hoops. You see him as a kind of bona fide performer. You do, but he's a kind of... He's a weird rock star because he's, yeah. he's very rough and ready. You know, so while by that point, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin and so on, Rolling Stones have become a big, slick operation. Dylan, who is really, you know, the, the biggest household name of them all, decided to do something which is very impromptu. And, you know, and so that was the interesting thing. So as, as good as he was, I think the reason he was so good wasn't because of slickness or professionalism. It was because of passion. And that's what really, really comes across in the film. 
Lev, one of the things I loved most about it was the scene, was was footage of, you know, Greenwich Village, of, of the rehearsal rooms, of people like Paddy Smith jumping up on stage and doing it, and Anne Ginsberg's songs and poetry and them riffing, and there's such a lot of kind of high... I mean, I love this era, such high-quality spotting of people, of vibe, of clothes, of atmosphere. Can you give us a little bit of a window into kind of what that what that looked like, what the vibe is that we're getting off that? I can almost smell it. I can almost smell know, kind of roll-ups yeah. and joints and, and spilt beer in these places. It's definitely okay. whiffy, isn't it? It's yeah. very whiffy. But I, in I, a good way, maybe. Oh, definitely in a good way. I feel like I could watch archive footage from that time forever. Yeah. Like, Tim, you would have said... Just like having it on the TV in my house yeah. to remind me of, of <laughs> yeah. good things. Yeah. Uh, I could honestly watch 10 hours. <laughs> oh, I, could, I, I really could go deep in it because it's just... Everything about seeing Patty Smith, and that's very early on in the film, just come on stage, what she's wearing, what she's, the noise she's making, and seeing everyone just kind of sitting around and everyone being slightly high. There's lots of kind of hangers on, and they mentioned that early on in the film yeah. that the hangers on are kind of problematic. And instantly, I, as a viewer, I was like, oh no, that would be me. Because <laughs> I was yeah. like, I, I'm definitely not in the band in this situation. I was like, I'm just a lowly peasant, just kind of a bit high in the corner enjoying it. And I feel like <laughs> it kind of sets you up to, sort of saying that early on sort of set me up to realise that that's my role. And the rest of the film, I was just going to be watching this and going to be feeling incredibly jealous, which I was. I can barely watch things like Almost Famous. I just have to kind of look away every now and again jealous. because I'm just jealous. Me too. <laughs> and I was watching it on the train yesterday and just being like, oh, for God's sake, I'm just... It's painful, actually, because it's just everything that you, everything that I wish life was a bit more like. I mean, it's kind of all that things being smellier, things being more interesting, things people speak in their minds. You've got poets hanging out with artists and musicians. You've got them wearing clothes that you just wouldn't even be able to find now. Like just everything about it, and everything's as you say, rough and ready, and everyone hasn't really washed for a few days. And you see a clip of Bob Dylan driving this rusty old mouldy bus, and you're like, I want to be on that bus. Yeah, it's just it's magic. It's it's, it's pure. Magic. So just the start of the film made me realise that I was in for two and a half hours of unadulterated joy, yeah. just, to, just visually. So I was so comfortable exciting. watching that film. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, now, I want to, let's kind of get into the weirdness and the trickery of this film. So there is, kind of early on in, in the film, a filmmaker called Stefan van Dorp pops up. And he's got a maybe a Dutch accent to go with his name, but he's kind of very Americanized, kind of handsome older dude believable as a filmmaker that might have been making something in the in the 70s and he starts saying i used to smoke in the european style like a vulcan peace sign or whatever it is and then it cuts to a picture and that and then we were at alan ginsburg's house and dylan was such a chameleon you know the next day i saw dylan smoking like this but that was me and it's and then you kind of go what a weird detail and then you watch the film again and dylan's smoking with his cigarette between his middle fingers instead of his index and his forefinger and it's a strange thing and that's where some of the strangeness starts and then you start to realize that stefan van dorp's voice is exactly as it is now but in 1975 when he's asking questions in inverted commas. At what point did you guys, maybe Tim, maybe more attuned to this sleight of hand as a film critic? I don't know. I'd been tipped off that there was stuff okay. in this film that was kind of invented. Did someone have a word in your and, shell like it? Uh, I'd heard someone had been seeing at the BFI <laughs> and said that this was a problem for them and that Sharon Stone never met Dylan at that. Because uh, she, she obviously is one of the main sort of yeah. witnesses in the film who comes along and says, oh, I was a 17-year-old groupie in, or a 19-year-old groupie. And she, she, that never happened. And they've kind of faked up a photo. See, I kind of thought that her... did. It's become, it was an urban myth yeah. to the extent that I always thought well, that Well, they're, they're trying to kind of blur the, the boundaries. And I think Stone 
Stefan van Dorp was one of the more convincing creations. And I was kind of, I was like, oh, is he or is he not real? And I, with him, I genuinely had to look him up, which I did. And he's actually Bette Midler's husband. Uh, he's an actor uh. called Martin von Hasselberg. And he's kind of a situationist prankster, basically, who Scorsese has hired to play the role of this director who purports to have pulled all this footage together, basically. So he's, uh, yeah, you realise that he's, and he's quite a clever one, I think. And then at the other end of the scale, you have a character called Tanner, who's a politician, who I did immediately recognise as fictitious, because he's in a Robert Altman film. In fact, a TV series that Altman made in the 80s called Tanner 88. He's played by Michael Moriarty, and he's this congressman who pops up, and he doesn't really add much to this film other than just like, oh, it's Tanner, why is he there? And I've got to say, on the, the, the spectrum of these inventions, I was like sometimes really enjoying them and thought, Oh, this is a fun kind of way of playing along with Dylan's kind of uh, game of hide and seek with his various personas. And then sometimes it actually got on my nerves. And particularly after this blistering performance of Hurricane, which is one of my favourite Dylan songs, incredible, presumably one of the very first live performances, which we get to see almost in its entirety. Mm. We have Reuben Carter himself, before his death, talking about the song. But before he gets to say anything, in comes Tanner and gives us a little kind of quotation. Of, and you're like, why, why is that there? Why is that being inserted? It just feels, it felt like fidgety and unnecessary thing to do. So I just thought, you know, great idea, maybe not perfectly executed. And often I just wanted to be plunging back into the songs and into the kind of the real smell of the era, if you like, the reality of it, as you were saying. Live, love, Liv yeah. just wants everything to be smelly. Yeah, it should have been in 4D, 4, you know, like smell of vision. Exactly, yeah. And I wanted that. I wanted the reality more, a bit more than the, the sort of falsehood. But yeah, but the, the, I mean, everyone will, will differ on that and you'll go back and forth, I think. What about the tender moments in it? As, as, as Dylan is sort of this, this unknowable troubadour in lots of ways and he's slippery and he doesn't answer straight questions and all the rest of it but there are some lovely tender moments in it well tell us about some of the tender moments in the film and some of the best performances maybe well the best performance would be the moment where jenny mitchell is showing dylan and roger mcguinn and a few other people coyote which at that at that point they wouldn't have heard and what she's doing is is strumming along and teaching them the chords while singing it you know coyote is an incredible song i think they're gonna cry here yeah, I mean, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's really beautiful, yeah. and that's. But that was more. I, it wasn't so much the tender moment. It was more that that was a remarkable, remarkable performance, and that for me was about creation. You know, so, and a very, very creative person, who I, I kind of I've got a few things to say about later on. But this tender moment, and that was it was really interesting. What Tim was saying about the fakery, because my feeling was that he's stuck in all these fake moments, and of course, Dylan has always faked his past and his history. But at the same time, it's a really revealing film. So you have these performances, mm. you have a very real feeling, and then you have moments like so Joan Byers, who, you know, had been Dylan's girlfriend and had really been sort of usurped by him in many ways and left behind and treated pretty badly. There's an amazing moment where he tries to be Dylan and he tries to be top dog and all the rest of it and he, and he said why didn't you marry me and then she basically says that you know well you were the one who you went off and married someone else you married someone else and it's incredible. incredible they both yeah. say we, oh. we married the wrong people didn't we yeah, yeah. yeah. Bob Dylan Joan Baez and Jack Elliott right in the Civic Center you know me I'm too old for that kind of stuff oh the charisma that he has, I've never seen anywhere before or since. It was a circus atmosphere. It was a feeling of being alive. We didn't have enough masks on that tour. They said, how about if you come on the road with us? He hasn't done an interview in 20 years. 
Joan Baez and me could sing together in our sleep. That's the story of the hurricane. The one thing that I got a bit frustrated by in the film, I mean, I love Dylan, but I don't think I'd particularly want to be in his band or definitely wouldn't want to be married to him. And I felt the awe, oh, oh, isn't he fantastic? He's wonderful. Everyone worships Dylan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's a very flawed individual. And someone like Joan Byers, you know, who knew him before he was famous and was, and at that point actually was a much bigger star than he was in 62. You know, she wasn't going to put up with this stuff. And so when he came up with his usual, you know, his usual kind of uh, line, which is basically men- making him sound good and suave and cool and her sound like she was, you know, she didn't, she didn't get with the programme, she stood up to him. And that was a great moment. So I feel that, yeah, it is... The fakery is weird, and the, I, I mean, I tend to believe everything I see anyway. So I, it was only afterwards that I've discovered that half of this stuff is fake. The biddable Will Hodgkinson there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, having said that, I also agree with Tim. Some of it, I think, what did that add to it? Why didn't you just have this amazing footage and all this amazing, all this, these scenes that unfolded? You kind of didn't need to. I mean, I quite like the Sharon Stone thing, which I didn't even realise was fake. Well, she's she's pretty good. She hasn't she's acted so well for like years and years. Well, that's Probably true. Not <laughs> since Casino, with the Scorsese film. Stellar performance. Yeah. The but, critical Tim Robin. Yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel very like that too. I watched the first half being a basic Brenda and just being like, "This is nice," like just kind of enjoying it and yeah. and just believing it, being this kind of the, the gullible person they wanted to watch it. But then after listening to the the, the New York Times podcast and a few other things about it, I was like, "Oh." But again, I was just completely stumped. I, I didn't really understand why. And then I felt a bit stupid, like, am I not really getting it? But I didn't really mind because there was so much Joan Baez and I didn't see that coming. I didn't know how, how much she'd feature in the film. And actually, I think without her in it, I might not have really enjoyed it that much at all. It'd be less revealing. She really made it for me. And she stands up against him even when she's being interviewed later, doesn't she? She says, oh, well, they said, did you really want to do this tour? Didn't you think it was going to be a bit of a nightmare? And she's like, well, believe me, I'd been there and I know Dylan. I know how bad it can be, but I thought it would be worthwhile. There was an energy to it that I was quite into. Yeah, and there's that fantastic bit where she dresses up as Bob and puts on his flowery hat and the white face. She really does look like him as well. Yeah, and she goes to get a coffee and everyone kind of fusses around her and grabs the things and she was like it was interesting to to be Bob Dylan for a few minutes and see how much people change around her and how frustrating as you say because she was you know the bigger at the time bigger selling artist and people still were kind of throwing her aside I mean the Joan thing is just fascinating and women get the kind of better at the equal and the better of him quite a bit in the film Scarlett Rivera the, the violinist who's an amazing creature I mean beautiful and just phenomenal sound on her I mean I don't really violin. know about her because I, like I say I haven't really swatted up on my Dylan but it made me realise that I I think the reason I love Desire more than the other albums is her violin playing. Yeah, that violin so. playing. I mean, in Hurricane, just those incredible yeah. kind of trills that she does up and down. And one more cup of um, coffee. It's exactly, so yeah. moody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Spooky. And, and watching and her on stage a, do it right next to him the whole time. Yeah, and I can't. And, and you know, you see that thing. You see it so much in the film that Dylan doesn't make eye contact with anyone apart from the people he allows to, and that's Scarlett Rivera, who's got this kind of dead-eyed stare at him while she's playing and he kind of looks away and the Joni Mitchell thing where they're playing Coyote in Gordon Lightfoot's sitting room or whatever with Roger McGinn and they're looking there's a flirtation a musical flirtation I would have said maybe a real one he's intimidated I mean this is the thing I, I love Dylan and I think that it's really really interesting in moments like that because he is comfortable being the person who is unknowable. He's one step better than everyone else. He's one step removed from everyone else. He, I think he laughs at his audiences to a certain extent. You know, there's a kind of mockery going on. But, you know, I like it when you have the Scarlett Riveras and Joan Baez, Baez's and the Jenny Mitchells of this world who are kind of, 
you know, they're in their own way they're standing up to it. They're brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a thing where, um, so is, it, is it the music journalist guy from Rolling Stone is sort of saying, oh, you know, I was asked who my, f- my f-, he said, my four favourite male songwriters in this era were, and then Jenny Mitchell's like, well, why didn't you ask, why, why wasn't I on your list? I mean, if you think I'm as good as, why, am I, why do they have to be guys? Mm. And the women come out of this very well. I mean, the music is amazing, but they're tough, yeah, they're strong, and they don't give, they give less of a toss about the, I think the men all scurry around Dylan like, like he's a queen bee and they're just drones, you know, whereas the women are very strong. It's kind of, it's, a, it's even, an interesting dynamic. Even it's Alan nice. Ginsberg is content to be sort of dropped off the bill at one point. His, yeah. his, his contribution gets completely minimized. Four hours of poetry. Yeah, off, off it goes. <laughs> uh, but, but there's some lovely stuff with him and Bob and like when they visit Jack Kerouac's grave and yeah. they just sort of sit that down cross-legged nice. yeah. and like he plays his little piano uh-huh. thing and that was very sweet. Yeah. Thanks to this film, we now have that. No, and there are these, yeah, you're right, and that's a kind of another thing that's almost like a document of the times. It's a time capsule of, oh, the of these kind of of these ma- of these moments. There's something so freewheeling to use a Dylanism about it, about that kind of thing, where the, that unstoppable tap of creativity actually, where you just sit down next to, and may- maybe it's a rehearsed thing, and maybe they had an idea to do it, but it seems very effectless. But and, it's, it's and worth sweet. mentioning, yeah, and it's worth mentioning that if you really want to nerd out. There is a massive box set that's just come out. This is the fourteen CD thing. Fourteen that comes CDs, with it. yeah. And I, I and I've done it. I've been through it, and you know it, it's it's great because yeah. you've got two CDs, which is just the demos, and they haven't been heard. Well, they probably have endless bootlegs of Dylan, but you mm. know, mo- they, they, I certainly hadn't heard them before. And then you've got all the concert from the tour, and so that's when you really see the creativity and and, and like we were saying before, these amazing performances. So it is there, and that's the reality, you know, against all this fakery. And Liv, when you realised the wool had been slightly pulled over your, your eyes, did it make you like the film more or less? It's a <laughs> and good the performances question. therein, I wonder, you know? No, I just don't mind. Yeah. I, I feel the same way if... Sometimes people tell me that aliens don't exist, and I'm like, well, if that's what you choose to believe, but I'd rather believe that they exist because it's more fun. And I feel like... <laughs> I don't... Put that on the poster. <laughs> I don't mind. Aliens are real. I don't mind being led down a, a funny path if, if that's going to... I Honestly, I, I feel like it's... It's more interesting, and, and I, I'll believe anything. And, and I, I genuinely don't think Bob Dylan is, has ever given anyone the truth. I, what do we expect? Yeah. It's fascinating for that reason, and I'm glad. I think I agree that there are, there are parts in the film, especially with Reuben Carter, where the fiction kind of muddies the power behind the actual story about them kind of essentially saving him from a longer jail sentence. And that's a bit that I'm a bit like, oh, maybe not. But for me, personally, loved it. Great. <laughs> I'm awake the blood off of my face I can't see through it anymore I've always been searching for something else I think he liked the chaos Focus in on that the Life isn't about finding yourself Or finding anything Life is about creating yourself. Okay, it's further reading time. Well, we're not straying very far from our set text here. You've chosen Joni Mitchell's Hegira. Hegira, well, this is because of this amazing moment where she's teaching Coyote, which is the first song on Hegira, to Bob Dylan and Gordon Lightfoot and I think Roger McGuinn is there. Mm. I think Joni Mitchell... Okay, she is without question the better musician. There's no question. She's a better musician than Dylan. I would say pretty much an equal songwriter. You know, I think she's up there as a songwriter. And I think this album 
is absolutely remarkable. It came out in 1976. She wrote most of it on a journey from Maine to L.A. And, you know, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know if it, when she's, she's writing it in her head or whatever, but most of the ideas came from that period. Coyote apparently was about Sam Shepard, who she had a relationship with. Well, that is Juicy Goss, didn't know yeah, that. Juicy Goss. He's in the, and he's a talking head in this film. He's talking well. head he in the film, he, Renato and Clara, he shot, and, you know, he was involved in the whole Dylan camp, and he and the song presents her as sitting at home on reel to reel, you know, working away, and he's this guy who's, who's off, you know, he's a ladies' man, essentially, having a lot of one-night stands. And it's just a really, really beautiful encapsulation of... It's not judgmental at all. It's much more an encapsulation of, of a one-night stand, I think, and the excitement and also the sadness. It's just amazing. It's just a brilliant album. I mean, you've got Amelia, which is kind of about a breakup and kind of about Amelia Earhart. You've got Fairy Sings the Blues, which is this lovely song about Fairy Lewis, who at that point was a very forgotten blues singer who was plying his trade on Beale Street in Memphis, in, in which is... You know, it's good fun, Beale Street, but it's very, very touristic. And, you know, he is one of the guys playing in these bars where they're sort of doing tequila shots for yeah, yeah. two for one and all the rest of it. <laughs> so she saw the sadness in that. And it's just, it's, you know, then Hegira uh, itself, which is about the end of a, another relationship. A song for Sharon, which I think was about, she had had uh, a brief relationship with Jackson Brown, the songwriter, and his wife committed suicide. And Song for Sharon was partially inspired by that. So what she was doing, and it's a very different approach to Dylan, I suppose, she was taking these very, very personal moments, often very specific. But the way she turned it into this rather jazzy album with Jacob Pistorius, the bassist, who is sort of underpinning this very complex musical style, was just absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's not an album that I think I liked when I was a kid, you know, it's not very immediate. It's not a rock and roll album. It is, in a way, a real mid-70s, pre-punk, sophisticated album, which is kind of, you know, you don't particularly... Well, I didn't particularly like that stuff as a kid. It, it seems quite boring. But actually, it's now one of my favourite albums of all time. Yeah. And I just think the depth of emotion combined with an intellect and a musicality is brilliant and definitely up there with anything Dylan has done. We love Hajira. Liv, you have chosen Diamonds and Rust by Joan Baez. Yes. We're keeping it in the, in the Rolling Thunder Review family. Yeah, it's not, it's not definitely not a tenuous link there. But that's, I, that's okay. You yeah. don't need to be... Okay. You know, actually, so I'm going to choose the rhyme of the ancient mariner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> actually, you could do that here. Um, it's by no means my favourite Joan Baez song, and I think it's probably her most popular because it's about Bob Dylan, which, again, plays into this whole frustrating narrative that she's this kind of cast-aside woman. But she was with him about probably nine, eight years before the review tour. But I think she wrote this song just before, and it basically it talks about Bob Dylan and her relationship years before. And she's singing these very raw lyrics, like kind of looking back on memories of leaves swirling around and snow in his hair. And, and it's, it's about him calling from a booth in the Midwest to basically talk to her and her frustration with that. But it's just, it's, it's fascinating. And it kind of, it's very raw and very bittersweet. And I think it kind of reflects the relationship that we all have with Bob Dylan, where he is this frustrating character who will just kind of, will have, like evade you at all costs and you'll never quite get to know him, you'll never quite have him. But even Joan, who I think is arguably the person who's, who was closer to him in his life because they performed together for so long and they were with each other, even she can't quite grab him. And that's what this film was all about for me, is like, we'll never know. And that's kind of the best thing. So that's why I chose this song. And it is a very beautiful song, but it's quite like, 
it doesn't take much digging to understand yeah. what she's saying there. It's pretty laid out on the table. And I don't really enjoy the fact that it's her most popular song either. I think she's better than that. But that just yeah, it's the story, an, that's it? a good, it's an interesting point, yeah. right? That it's almost yeah, it's all, it's in service of or it's about Bob Dylan, despite mm. the fact it's her best thing. Yeah, I love the idea of there's a certain romance, a certain only it could be American romance about calling from a phone booth in the Midwest. You know, yeah. I've got a, I've got a big Great Plains feeling about this. Yeah, it's something big, romantic, and unknowable about it. But it, about it just wonderful. says so much about like maybe you've had an ex partner who's just a bit of a nightmare, and of course they're calling from a booth in the Midwest, like you know, in the middle of the night. That's just kind of yeah. like a trope of someone who's annoying, just to kind of you know, right. he's <laughs> showing off that he's in this kind of you yeah. know tundra somewhere in a, in a phone booth. I think yeah, it's just a very interesting song, and I think it's a uh, yeah, I think it's good to bring it back to Joan always. Here, here, Tim, finally. I chose I'm Not There, which is the Todd Haynes sort of pseudo-biopic of Dylan, which is the film which tries to answer the question, will the real Bob Dylan please stand up by casting seven different actors to play him, including Kate Blanchett and Ben Whishaw and various others. And I feel that if you're going to delve into the kind of slippery personas of Dylan, in fact, Todd Haynes has sort of, sort of done this already with David Bowie in uh, Velvet Goldmine, yeah. which is the kind of will the real David Bowie please stand up film. But if you're going to do this, then you might as well just go all in, which is what Todd Haynes does. And all the different seven parts of this film kind of deal with a different facet of Dylan's creativity. And uh, I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's a bonkers film. It's one, of, it's sort of the weirdest film that Todd Haynes has put out there. But I get a lot out of it, and it was very educational for me in kind of trying to get a handle on Dylan a bit. Uh, and again, and, you know. Know, the fictional teaching you more than the facts. Exactly, it very much did. And like, for instance, I think I became obsessed with One More Cup of Coffee, yeah. mainly because of the way it's used in this film. And also Ballad of the Thin Man, mm. which gets a brilliant sequence where Kate Blanchett is fielding questions from this snooty BBC reporter. And he is Mr. Jones, and she, she, she basically tries to kind of shut him out at all times. Uh, and the way that those songs are used to, yeah, to kind of dig into the, the, the Dylan myths is really clever i think and uh, yeah i'd like to rewatch it again now actually yeah that film is great i'd like to rewatch it again i think it, it does well at describing it kind of when i watched that i understood a lot more about bob dylan even though it's so it's quite abstract at times and Absolutely. sometimes it's very confusing things like heath ledger and then yeah it's Kate blanche and then the soundtrack is all covers of his music so it's all very again when we're, we're never getting to bob dylan it's just kind of stuff yeah. around him but you're kind of building up all this this kind of big collage that eventually makes you understand more but Oh, if if we do it all, that's probably all a lie as well. That film, <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> won't be fooled again. Got no idea what's real anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what rich pickings from um, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Thunder review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. It's been in cinemas. Maybe it's still in a few. It's on Netflix, by the way. Thank you very much to my guests today, Liv Siddle, Will Hodgkinson and Tim Roby. And of course, to my producer, Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the time being, thanks for tuning in.